محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الديني بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, So we were discussing the battle of Mu'ta and this is our uh, second and final discussion of the battle of Mu'ta and last week I had gotten to the place of uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid having been appointed and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, ex- explaining to the people what had happened uh, in the battle and his reaction in Medina. Now let us go back to the battle and mention what did Khalid ibn al-Walid do and once again I reiterate that unfortunately we really just have two or three <clears throat> explicit narrations from which we have to derive the entire story. So what appears to be the case is that Khalid ibn al-Walid he realized that there is no way to achieve actual victory and that the only real victory would be to preserve the Muslim army from complete destruction, from massacre. So what did he do? He has a two-pronged tactic. The first tactic was that he organized the army for a quick, short-term attack. And the purpose of this was to cause the Romans to stop from their onslaught. So he wanted to just launch a quick attack to pause the Romans and cause them to stop in their onslaught. And... How did he do this? Again, we only have one uh, narration, but I'm sure there were other things that he did. But one of the things that is mentioned is that he strategically positioned the archers so that uh, the archers were able to stop the onslaught of the uh, Romans from coming. And Ibn uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions, for example, one small incident that one of the uh, archers was an elderly man by the name of Waqid ibn Abdullah al-Tamimi. And even though he had a good uh, arm still, but his eyes were feeble. So he told his two companions that lift me on top of your shield and I'll sit on top of the shield and you carry me as high as you can and I will shoot as hard as I can and you will be my eyes. So he used two people to basically guide him, turn more, you know, more this way, more that way. And so a, a group of archers basically were the primary method that was used. And there's no doubt that there was a direct onslaught as well. And this is mentioned by Khalid himself in Sahih Bukhari. He says that on the day of Mu'ta, nine swords broke in my hand. Nine swords, one after the other, kept on using nine swords until I finally only had left one Yemeni shield. So we, from this we derived that there was also an onslaught, there was also an attack on the ground, on infantry, and this was led by Khalid ibn al-Walid. And what this did was that by the time night fell, the two armies had managed to separate themselves outside of the distance of a bow and arrow. So they are now safe from the bows and arrows throughout the night. The two armies are now within visual sight, but not within the sight of bows and arrows. And so when night fell, the Muslims are at least safe for the time being, and they took shelter behind a hill. And it was on that evening that finally the martyrs could be buried. So the bodies had been lying there for the entire day. So in the evening, uh, that was when the martyrs could be buried, and the three of the leaders, and that is of course uh, Ja'far and who else? Number one was who? This is a simple question. Zaid. And number two? Ja'far. And number three? Abdullah bin Rawah. That all three of them were in fact buried in one uh, grave. Now, what happened the next day? The fact of the matter is the books do not tell us anything, at least the classical books. From what I could find, nothing explicit is mentioned. But I did find in one of the later books a technique or a strategy. And I don't know where this author got it from, but Allah knows best, but it appears to be uh, something that is constructed or read into the classical books. That another tactic that he did the next day, Khalid ibn al-Walid, was that he gave the impression that a group of reinforcements were arriving. He gave the impression to the Romans that a group of reinforcements were coming from Medina. And what this did was it caused the Romans and the Christian Arabs to simply pause because now they're worried that other groups will come. And in this pause, Khalid ibn al-Walid and the Muslims basically managed to 
run away from the battlefield and achieve complete security. Because had they left in front of the eyes of the Romans, the Romans would have followed them. And if they had followed them, they would have been massacred. So by giving the illusion of reinforcements coming, the Romans pause for a few hours. And in that few hours, Khalid and Walid and the Muslims managed to escape to security. Now, how did he give the illusion of uh, people coming? Well, one of the books mentions uh, uh, a tactic of telling a group of uh, Sahaba to spread out thin in an area that had sand and far, far away and use certain instruments or certain, let's say, wings or whatever uh, to beat the dust up and to run forward in the dust. So that when you see from the distance, there is an illusion given that hundreds of horsemen or hundreds of people are coming. And so you have the, the, the dust storm gathering in the distance. This is one version that is given and Allah knows best, but we have a lot of details that, sorry, we do not have a lot of details. But the fact of the matter is that what Khalid ibn walid managed to do was to save the bulk of the Muslim army from what otherwise would have been a complete uh, disaster or catastrophe so much so that only a handful of sahaba passed away we know the names of around 15 probably another 5 or 10 whose names we do not know so the fact of the matter is out of 3,000 people 1% basically passed away 1% and that is alhamdulillah a very very uh, great if you like uh, victory in its own way that faced with the odds that they were faced with, faced with the superior fighting power, still the fact that less than 1% of the army actually passed away and the, or, or died and the rest of them returned. So from this, the question arises. Uh, and, and by the way, on the way back, uh, they passed by the same village that had wounded them and killed one of their own and they extracted revenge. Uh, again, the books are not clear what exactly they did, but they extracted revenge and they got their revenge from uh, those people that had killed the Muslims. Now, the question arises, is Mu'ta a victory or is it a loss? There are three opinions about this issue. The first opinion is that Mu'ta is a victory. In fact, they said it is a big victory. And this is the position of Musa ibn Uqba, who is a contemporary of Ibn Ishaq and also a famous seerah expert of the classical time. And also the opinion of Imam al-Bayhaqi, who died 438. And also the position of Ibn Kathir, who died 790-something. Uh, uh, so Ibn Kathir, the famous Ibn Kathir. They all felt that Mu'ta is a massive victory. What is their evidence? Well, their primary evidence, well, of the things they say, not their primary, of the things they say, the fact that the Muslims by and large return successfully with less than 1% casualty. Number one. Number two, the fact that they took some war booty, which is true, they took some booty back with them. We'll talk about one of the stories uh, today as well. And number three, their main evidence is what the Prophet Muhammad himself said. What did he say? The hadith is in Sahih Bukhari. We already mentioned the first part of it last week and that is that the Prophet ﷺ told them of the deaths of Zayd and Ja'far and Abdullah as they're being killed and he's describing it and he is crying. And then what did he say? Until a sword from the sword of Allah took it and Allah gave them victory. Now, the evidence here is khalas. QED as they say. Nothing more to be done. If, if the Prophet Muhammad says, Fatah Allahu ala yaday, then it's Fatah. And Fatah means victory. So they basically use theology and they say, Khalas, if the Prophet said it, then Khalas, it must be a Fatah. Just like Allah says, Inna fatah Even though Hudaybiyah seemed to be a loss, but Allah says it's Fatah, so it is a Fatah. So that it's basically a theological point that because the Prophet said it's a Fatah, Mu'ta is a Fatah. Okay. Those who are more historians, so Al-Waqidi and Ibn Sa'ad, uh, and also all non-Muslim historians that write about this event, they consider this to be a loss. They consider this to be a loss. In light of the fact that the Muslims, well, firstly, they lost three very, very important, significant leaders, one after the other. They lost the flag. And secondly, the fact that they had to retreat and the Romans remained. And generally speaking, the one who retreats is not the victor, generally speaking. So they're looking at it from a more military, a more political perspective, and they say Mu'ta was a defeat. The third opinion is that it's neither a victory nor a defeat. It is in fact a draw. Neither side won clear cut. And 
They say, now this is the position of Ibn Ishaq himself. It is the position of the Andalusian scholar Ibn Abd al-Bar. It's also the position of Ibn al-Qayyim in his Zad al-Ma'ad. That Mu'ta was basically neutral. No side was a clear victor. They say similar to Uhud, which is also the correct opinion in Uhud, by the way, that it is not a, a victory or a loss. It's basically a little bit of both, so it becomes equal in the end. And in some ways, the Muslims had the upper hand. So in this position of the Mu'ta, they say, Mu'ta is neither a victory nor a loss. Now why? Because they say, neither side attack the other, and the two sides returned both of them back to their places. And they say, neither side took prisoners of war. When I say attack the other, I mean at the end of the battle. There was not a clear frontal assault from either side. Both of them returned back. And the fact that neither side took prisoners of war, and in terms of dead, it is probably equal, or maybe the Quraysh, uh, sorry, the, the, the pagans or the, the, the Arab Christians had a little bit more, but it's not as if there's any significant issue there. And therefore, because both sides returns back home and neither side annihilates the other, therefore it's a tie, it's a draw. Now, in my humble opinion, it's, uh, each of these three opinions is correct in its own way, which is basically all three are correct. I.e., from each perspective, they have an element of truth. From a purely theological perspective, if the Prophet said it is a fatah, sami'na wa ata'na, it is a fatah. At the same time, the fact that he calls it a fatah doesn't mean it's a fatah from a military perspective. It could be a fatah from other perspectives. right? So if somebody comes and says, yes, it is a fatah, in that long term the goals are achieved. This is valid. But it doesn't mean that it is a fatah in this particular battle. It's a different type of fatah. Just like Hudaybiyah was a long-term fatah, right? Short-term, all of the Muslims were quite incensed what is going on in Hudaybiyah, right? Even the Prophet said, Allah knows, I'm not going to disobey Allah, Allah knows. So the fatah might be long-term, but in the short-term, Al-Waqidin ibn Sa'd do have a point that in the end of the day, it was the Romans who remained in their lands, the Arab Christians remained in their lands, the Muslims did not conquer even an inch in this battle, and the Muslims have to return home. So the second opinion does have some truth to it. And of course, the third opinion also has a lot of weight to it. In that, actually it's not a pure loss because neither did the Romans attack the Muslims. Rather, they let them go. And therefore, we can say that the Prophet ﷺ called it a victory in that the Sahaba managed to save themselves from death. And that is a victory. Not necessarily that Mu'ta was a military victory. Victory can be a different types. And this victory was a victory of the fact that less than 1% of the army was, uh, was uh, massacred, was martyred, and the bulk of the army returns home. And also, I mean, in my humble opinion, I think this is one of the problems that our, many of our Muslim historians have. They want to somehow make every battle positive for the Muslims. And they don't realize that, subhanAllah, it is actually of great benefit and wisdom that some battles don't come out to be so positive. That Allah Azza wa is showing us that look, you're not gonna get everything on a silver platter. Sometimes you have to struggle and sometimes even the Sahaba, even our Prophet Muhammad in, in Uhud, what is Uhud? Accept this illustration, right? That we really don't have to demonstrate, as, and this is really I think one of the problems that many Muslim, not just theologians, historians, Sirabi, that everything has to be read in a certain light. And I think that this is actually problematic because when you go through something negative and you don't find anything in the seerah that is anyhow negative, how are you going to relate? Whereas if this battle actually is not fully positive, which is really my position, then you actually find some comfort in this when you go through some negative, when other issues arise. And here we have another wisdom and that is that even the sahaba are human. And sometimes they'll make... Uh, not, not necessarily a mistake, but they'll make a judgment that doesn't turn out to be in the best interest in the immediate future. Maybe the long term everything will work out and that's the benefit. In the long run, Allah will take care of everything. But sometimes in the short run, victory might not be that uh, tangible. So uh, the Sahaba returned back, the Prophet ﷺ rejoiced at their return, he welcomed them. But what happened was within a few days, Rumors began to spread. Smear campaigns were launched against the people who participated in Mu'tah. How do we know this? Because it is mentioned in one of the books of Hadith that the Prophet ﷺ saw the wife of Salama bint Hisham and he said, what is the matter with Salama? I haven't seen him in the masjid. Is he alright? Why is he not coming? 
And so his wife said, Ya Rasulullah, he has not come out of his house. Because every time he exits, people make fun of him. And people chastise him and rebuke him. And they say, O oh, you who escaped, O oh, you who ran away, have you run away from the way of Allah? Afarartum min sabilillah. Have you run away from the, the path of Allah? Which means, of course, over here, jihad. So Salama has remained in his house, not leaving out of this rebuke. So what this shows is that some of the Sahaba, those who did not go, they, or perhaps some of these were hypocrites. We don't know the details of who were saying this, or perhaps it was a mixture of both. The Sahaba felt a bit of positive anger, like why could you have fled? And the hypocrites felt a way of smearing. And so both of them are possible. So the people who had participated in Mu'ta were then being smeared. That you are cowards. You have fled the battlefield. You didn't stand your ground. And they're being mocked. أَفَرَرْتُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِ have you uh, run away and fled from the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So when the Prophet heard this, he said to all of the masjid over there that they are not runners away, they are kurrar. And kurrar means the ones who will come back and fight again. So he took the smear and he changed one letter, the fat to the kaf, and he made a positive word out of it. Right? And this is of the fiqh and of the rahmah and of the long-sightedness of the Prophet to take a smear, furrar, which means runners away. And he says, no, they are kurrar. And kurrar means they will come back and fight again. And so that the Prophet then basically shut down all of the smear campaigns with one word. They are not runners away. They are not fleers. They're not cowards. They will come back to fight again, meaning they save themselves from death and they will come back and they will fight again. And by the way, this clearly shows us that, and this is a very sensitive issue and I don't want this to be misunderstood, that no doubt martyrdom, genuine and legitimate martyrdom is a goal of every single Muslim. At the same time, this goal is not expedited foolishly. You don't walk into the battle wanting to die and therefore just standing there doing nothing. This is not of the fiqh of our religion, because if everybody did this, then there would be no legitimate battle. Every warrior would just throw his arms and say, Yalla Bismillah, I want to meet Allah Azza wa Jal. Right? This is not the way. And therefore, these Sahaba, 99% of them returned back. Some of the Sahaba seemed a little bit overzealous, like how dare you turn your backs? How dare you run away from them? And the others that, were, that actually had fled, they obviously felt guilty. That's why Salam is sitting at home. That you know what, maybe there is a right point. Maybe I should have stayed there. Maybe I should have just died. But the process is demonstrating, no doubt martyrdom is a genuine goal of every Muslim. This is, wallah, you cannot deny this. Our Prophet clearly said that a legitimate martyrdom, obviously, is something we all want. But we don't want foolish martyrdom. We don't want illegitimate martyrdom. And this is what this hadith shows. That they haven't run away out as cowards. They have protected themselves so that they can fight a legitimate battle once again. They're not furrar, they are kurrar. And uh, after the army had returned, and we, last week we had mentioned the story of the women of Ja'far and they were wailing and screaming and you know, the messenger comes back three times as remember this story from last time. So when uh, this occurred, the Prophet commanded that food be prepared for the family of Ja'far. And he said, Prepare food for the family of Ja'far, for a matter has occurred that has made them busy. And so food was prepared for them. And after three days, he visited the family of Ja'far. He visited the wives and the children of Ja'far. And he said, After today, let no one cry over my brother. And he called Ja'far, Akhi. Because Ja'far is a akhi and a cousin, is a close confidant of the Prophet ﷺ. So let nobody cry after uh, today uh, over my brother. And he called for the children of Ja'far. And there was Abdullah ibn Ja'far, there was uh, Muhammad ibn Ja'far. Uh, so he called for the children of Ja'far. And Abdullah was the older of the two. And Abdullah narrates this hadith. Abdullah was probably seven years old, six years old at the time. He remembers this. So Abdullah is narrating the hadith. That the Prophet visited us after my father had died. And he called for us to come. And all of our hair was disheveled. In fact, the wording in the hadith was, he said, we look like baby chickens. Like completely, you know, every hair. 
The reason obviously being that the mother is not going to comb their hair. She's just lost a husband. She already is quite traumatized. We, we heard what happened last week with her. So she's not really combing the hairs of the children at this stage. So their hair is all disheveled. And the Prophet sees this. So he orders that a barber be called. He takes charge even of the barber, of the, of the children. He orders that a barber be called and that their hairs be uh, trimmed or shaved off. And then he praises or talks to each one of the children. And he says, as for Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Jafar, as for Muhammad, he looks just like my uncle Abu Talib. And of course, Abu Talib is Muhammad's, this Muhammad's grandfather, right? Muhammad ibn Jafar ibn Abi Talib. So he said, this one looks just like my uncle. And then he called for Abdullah and he said, as for Abdullah, he looks just like me and he acts just like me. In other words, the point is every one of these children, he's like kind of making them feel something special, right? And Abdullah was the oldest of them. So he held on to Abdullah's hands and he raised it up and he said, oh Allah, allow Ja'far's progeny to remain. Which means that, basically means, Oh Allah, bless the remainder of Ja'far's progeny. Oh Allah, allow them to flourish. Oh Allah, bless Abdullah in all of his transactions. Because Abdullah is going to be the man of the house now. Abdullah is going to be the caretaker. So, oh Allah, whatever he does for money, basically, in his safaqat, which means buying and selling, oh Allah, bless him in all of this. And he said this three times. And he told them that your father has been substituted instead of his two hands because they have heard the gruesome news that both of his hands have been cut off, that they have discovered his body without two hands. So they've heard this. So he tells them, as for your father, Allah has substituted two wings instead of his two hands and he is flying around in Jannah wherever he wants to go. And his mother, their mother, who is their mother? Who is the mother of these children? Who is the mother of these children? We have mentioned her name at least 10 times in the seerah. No, no. None of the sisters, this is disappointing because sisters should know the names of the Sahabiyat. No, I'm not even going to mention you anymore. There's no point. <laughs> bin someone, I like this. She's been someone. <laughs> Asma binti Umais. No, no bells ringing still. Asma binti Umais. Asma binti Umais. Who is Asma binti Umais? The daughter of Umais, mashallah. Asma binti Umais. Asma binti Umais was... Firstly, the wife of Ja'far. Then when Ja'far passed away, right now he becomes a shaheed. Asma marries Abu Bakr. And when she marries Abu Bakr, so the two of them have, who's named? <laughs> guys, today isn't a good day for us. <laughs> it's too cold, that's why. So coldness destroys memory. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, the famous Muhammad. I mean, how many children does Abu Bakr have? Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, right? Then Abu Bakr passes away. Then who does Asma marry? Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? So Asma married Ja'far and Abu Bakr and Ali. And from each of them, she has children, mashallah, tabarakallah, right? And of course, this shows us, I mean, without having to, I mean, all the, obviously, I've said this so many times, the stigma of divorce did not exist amongst the Sahaba as it exists in later Muslim societies. A divorced lady was not considered to be uh, someone that, you know, uh, is khalas, that she might as well live the rest of her life uh, alone. That type of attitude did not exist amongst the Sahaba. And we have so many of the Sahabiyat, uh, you know, marrying one after the other. And th they didn't consider divorce to be that type of stigma. Uh, there's a little bit of an anecdote mentioned about uh, Asma uh, when Ali was married to her. So Muhammad ibn Ja'far and Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, right? There, there are two half-brothers. They began debating with one another whose lineage is better. Now their mother's one, right? And... So Muhammad ibn Ja'far said, I am the son of Ja'far, I am my father this, my father that. And Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr is saying, I am this, I am that. I am my son and my father is Abu Bakr and this and that. And so Ali is sitting there watching these two young men, you know, boasting that which one of their fathers was more noble. So he wants to tease his wife, Asma. So he says, Khalas, your mother shall be the judge. Now, the two men are his competitors in terms of ex-husbands, Right? 
So he wants to tease his wife. Like which one will she choose? So your mother will be the judge who was the more noble of the two because she was married to the both of them. So he calls Asma out and he says, you, you decide between your two sons. And so he puts her on the spot. This is just an anecdote, not related to Mu'tah. And he puts her on the spot. Which of the two men is better? And look at the intelligence of Asma. Asma bint Umay says, as for the shabab, the young men, then Ja'far is the Sayyid of them. And as for the Kuhul, and that's like the wise senior men, then Abu Bakr is the Shaykh of them. So in other words, both are top. Because Ja'far was young when he passed away, Abu Bakr was obviously 63, 61 when he passed away. Right? So she's saying both of them were the best. So Ali says, then what have you left for me? So he's got the best here, the best there. That means I am the last of them, right? And of course, this, wallahi, it shows us. What does it show us? I mean, you, you tell me. What is the one thing it really shows us? The joking around, of course, between husband and wife and whatnot. But who are the families that we're talking about here? Who are the families? Think about it. Al al-Bayt and Abu Bakr. Do you notice any tension? Do you notice any hint of a problem? I mean, wallahi, it's so, honestly, it's so ludicrous to read in that there were tensions. Here's Ali marrying Abu Bakr's ex-wife. Here's Ali joking that which one of the two is better, Abu Bakr or, or his own brother, because Ali's brother is Ja'far, right? And once Asma gives her intelligent, watertight answer, he then jokes back at her. Like, what have you left for us? And wallahi, it's so obvious that there was no tension amongst these great sahaba, the way that some groups say. And again, you know, you know our theology, but every incident of the seerah shows us, even something as trivial as this, that this type of tension has been constructed and read in. The sahaba themselves are getting along completely, you know, fine in this regard. And alhamdulillah for that. In any case, back to the story of Mu'tah. So this is Asma binti uh, Umais. So Asma comes out. And Asma begins to complain about the orphans, meaning she's saying, Ya Rasulullah, they're all, they're all orphans, meaning who's going to take care of them? Who's going to take care of them? And the Prophet ﷺ said, are you scared of poverty for them? When I will be the one who will take care of them in this world and the next. Ana waliyuhum. I am their wali in this dunya and the akhirah. So he took charge immediately or directly of the children of uh, Ja'far, and all of this demonstrates the care and the concern of our Prophet ﷺ, especially for orphans. He himself was an orphan, and he knew what it felt like to be an orphan. From this incident, by the way, we also derive some very interesting uh, sunan. Of the sunan is that when a family uh, suffers a death or a tragedy, it is sunnah to gift the family with food. Especially for those who are the closest, like, like very close friends that they should take charge of giving the family food. And this is proven in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Make food for the family of Ja'far because something has come that will cause them to be too busy to cook for themselves. Also, it is sunnah to visit and to give words of consolation and to give words of encouragement. It is also sunnah to visit but not for a long time, i.e. it is discouraged to sit for a long time. It is makruh to turn that visit into a socialization session. The visiting is just to console and to give dua. You sit for what is urf or, or reasonable in one's culture, maybe in our culture, half an hour or so. You sit to give them consolation and then you let them basically have some private family time. And uh, also it is makruh for the host family to feed the visitors. This is wrong and in some cultures it happens. This is wrong. The family who has suffered a tragedy, they should not be hosting. And there is a hadith to this effect. It is narrated by uh, Jalil ibn Abdullah al-Bajali, the, fam the famous Sahabi. Jalil ibn Abdullah al-Bajali, he said, We used to consider gathering in the house of the Mayyit, and they're preparing food for us, a part of the wailing that the Prophet forbade, the niyaha. The niyaha is forbidden. So notice, he said two things. We used to consider gathering in the house of the deceased. Now, by gathering, he could not have meant visiting because the Prophet visited. So by gathering is meant you stay there. 
and you make your visit into a socialization. This is not the purpose of consolation. And the feeding of the guests, i.e. by the people that are suffered a tragedy. We used to consider this a part of the forbidden niyaha, the forbidden wailing. This is a part of it. And therefore we have to be careful that we do not fall into this uh, as well. Also of the wisdoms we learn here that the Prophet waited for three days and then he came back and he consoled them. And what this shows us is that for three days as we know, mourning is allowed and then after the third day, mourning should uh, stop except for the wife who remains in her idda. And idda is slightly different than mourning. Mourning, the legitimate mourning is uh, to feel a sense of loss, a sense of grief and crying and altering your lifestyle or schedule to a little bit. I.e., you're so depressed you don't feel like eating too much. You're so depressed you maybe take off from work. This is halal and ja'is for three days. Beyond this, to beat yourself, to wail out loud, to cry claims of kufr. Who's going to take care of me? How will I live? I cannot live without you. This is haram. So wailing. And wailing means to raise your voice out loud. And shrieking. And these were things that they are still done in some cultures. Muslim cultures. And in fact our Prophet said, Four are the things of jahiliyyah. My ummah will never give them up. Four are the things of jahiliyyah. My ummah will never give them up. Number one he said, Niyaha al-mayyit. And niyaha is basically the types of pagan customs that existed in jahiliyyah. Of them is wailing. Of them is crying out loud. He said these will remain in my ummah forever even though they are from the uh, jahiliyyah. So what then is allowed? I gave you some examples of what is allowed. Crying without wailing, tears coming out. Our Prophet himself, when the news came, Aisha says he had to sit down. I mean, well, I think about that. Rasulullah, he's so overcome with grief, jealous. I mean, that's a shock. And he was crying. Anas says he was crying. And Jabir and Aisha says you could see the, the grief on his face. This is all permissible. Now, as we said last week, Asma, or I should not mention, is the women of Ja'far and the family of Ja'far went a little bit beyond. And here we find a big wisdom. The Prophet attempted to stop them, attempted to stop them through the, the messenger three times until finally when it cannot be done, khalas, okay, let them be. Then on the third day he comes and he puts an end to it. Let no one wail over my brother anymore. Khalas, end of story. And this shows us that look, sometimes you just cannot enforce perfection. Even in the extended family of the Prophet ﷺ, things happened that he did not approve of. Think about this. And I say this all the time, that when a person dies, now is not the time to become fine-tuning detail of what is sunnah and what is bid'ah and what is complete. It's a person who is overcome with emotion. A person has lost his mother, his grandmother, his father, doesn't understand fully. If you are an intricate member of the family, then you speak and you say, okay, let us do this. If you are a stranger or an acquaintance or just a friend, now is not the time to become Mr. Sunnah and tell them this is bid'ah and this is haram. You let them do what you want and then at a better time, at a better occasion, you can teach them what is the appropriate sunnah. It's not necessary that you enforce everything you know, at this get-go. Here our Prophet himself cannot control the extended members of the family of Ja'far. What can be done? But on the third day he comes and he corrects it all. He goes, okay, end of story. These kids haven't been combed, clean their hair up. You're going to stop crying, you're going to get your life to act together. So after three days, you have to stop living in that shock state. Deal with it. Get to terms with it. And as they say, time heals all wounds. And wallahi, this is true. Time heals all wounds. Allah has made us this way. No matter how big the tragedy, how great the calamity, eventually you move on and you simply live your life. And therefore, three days is the maximum time given where the death of somebody can cause us to alter our schedule. And that's halal for three days. It's halal. But after three days, khalas, end of story. And move on. The only exception, the wife... She remains four months and ten days with extra rulings. And those rulings are not mourning. They're 
their ihdad rulings and the haddad rulings are basically she does not beautify herself the way that a wife should beautify for her husband out of respect for her husband and she remains in the house as much as possible this is something specific for the wife four months and ten days uh, but even after three days she should try to just get into the schedule again of eating and drinking and whatnot and try to overcome the extra grief even though it is halal for her uh, for a longer period of time out of respect and honor for the status of the uh, husband. So all of this we learn from the story of Asma binti Umais and the children of Ja'far. And as I said that after her idda was over, that later on uh, Abu Bakr proposed for Asma and uh, Asma then married Abu Bakr. How about uh, Zayd? Zayd of course had a son and his name was? Usama ibn Zayd. And it is mentioned in the Musannaf Abdul Razak that uh, when the Prophet, whenever the Prophet would see Usama after the battle of Mu'ta, that he would tear up, he would cry by when he saw Usama. Because Usama is now probably 14 at this stage, probably maybe even 13. I mean, we don't know exactly, between 13 to 15. He's just a young man just about to become an adult and now at the prime of his youth he's lost his father and he looked he resembled his his father and so he uh, the memories of Zayd would become uh, come back to him when he saw Usama and so we learn that even when he saw Usama he himself would tear up and he would become uh, grief stricken looking at uh, Usama ibn Zayd and uh, after a few days he came to the masjid and the sahaba were sitting there huddled up some of them were crying and he said, why are you crying? So they said, why should we not cry, O Messenger of Allah, when the best of us and the most noble of us have left? Why shouldn't we cry? So, but such a big calamity. And of course, in particular, they meant the three who had passed away. So our Prophet ﷺ said, but do not cry. Do not cry. For the example of my ummah is like a garden whose owner has cut the leaves and the branches and prepared his houses so that each year gives a better crop than the last year. Now pause here, what does this mean? So in order to uh, grow the garden, you have to cut the leaves and actually get rid of some of the things to fertilize and to uh, you know, uh, make the garden grow. So in order, like for example, what do we do with rose, roses? You, you have to prune it and cut it and, and basically do it. So our, the Prophet is giving this analogy, but he's giving with the date gardens, the date groves. So he's saying the example of my ummah is like this garden. The owner of the garden has to cut and prune and do things in order for the garden to flourish. And the next year shall be better. And the next year shall be better. And the Messiah Isa will meet this ummah. And there will be a group that he meets that are like you or even better than you. He's talking to the Sahaba. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not humiliate an ummah. I am the first of them and the Masih is the last of them. Allah will not humiliate an ummah. I am the first of them and the Masih is the last of them. Now this hadith is a very, very beautiful hadith. And scholars have differed about its authenticity. Ibn Hajar has said it is Hassan. Uh, and it is narrated by Ibn Abi Shayba. And some of the more stricter scholars, such as the ones of our times, uh, have said that it is slightly weak. Uh, in any case, the meaning, Ibn Hajar said it is authentic by the way, but the meaning is definitely beautiful. And it's also authentic in its own way. Allah will not humiliate an ummah, the first of whom is myself, and the last of whom is Al-Masih Isa ibn Maryam. Right? And this is so true. That who is the last person to pass away of this ummah? It will be a group of people with Al-Masih. With Isa ibn Maryam. You all know we did this in the series of the Day of Judgment, right? The last Muslims that will pass away, will pass away with Al-Masih with them and amongst them. And perhaps from this, perhaps we can say, the very last Muslim to pass away will be Al-Masih Isa ibn Maryam. Perhaps we can say, Allah knows best. That I am the first, and he was the first. And Al-Masih will be the very last. And what a beautiful way of showing the, the perfection of this uh, ummah. So he said, Allah will never humiliate this ummah. I am the first and Masih is the last. And Al-Hassan ibn Thabit and many of the other sahaba, they wrote long lines of poetry about the martyrs of Mu'ta. And these are recorded in Ibn Ishaq and other books. And the point being, from all of these narrations, from all of these narrations, we learn Mu'ta was a very traumatic incident. For the Sahaba and especially for the Prophet Muhammad it was one of the most traumatic episodes of the seerah. And sadly, many of us are completely unaware 
of Mu'ta. We don't even know uh, who died and what happened in it. But you look at the, 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 the trauma, you look at the grief that had afflicted all of the Sahaba, and especially our Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. and we notice uh, its importance and its status. Now there's also one final story about Mu'ta before we conclude and summarize. Uh, and that is that there's a side story mentioned which has some benefit. And that is that in the battle of Mu'ta, there was also a group of helpers, al-Muddadi, al-Muddadis from Yemen. That's not a tribe. The Muddadi means the one who's helping. And they had joined the, the army uh, to fight against uh, the, the people of, of uh, the Romans and the Arab Christians. And one of them, a story is mentioned about him. One of them, he only had one sword in the fight. And when uh, the Romans came near, one of the Muslims had sacrificed an animal to feed to the army. So he asked him, can I take the skin of this animal? So the Sahabi said, take it. So he took it and he made a leather armor out of the skin. You know, he tanned it, he fixed it, and he made a double, he doubled it up and he made an armor out of it. And there was a Roman, perhaps lieutenant, again, the books of Sira do not mention his level and rank, but there was a Roman with very, uh, it says, bright armor, golden armor. And he was wreaking havoc in the lines of the Muslims. And so this Mudadi basically attacked him with only goatskin and a, uh, a sword. He attacked him and managed to kill this Roman, maybe lieutenant or uh, general. And he took his horse and his armor and his weapons and he took everything as, as booty, right? Now, of course, this is the fiqh that the one... Uh, who kills a soldier will get the personal belongings of the soldier. Now, uh, when the battle is over, so he takes all of these into his uh, basically baggage and Khalid al-Walid says, what is this? He's the commander, no? Khalid is the commander. He says, what is this? So the man says, I killed the Roman and so I get all of his goods. So Khalid said, this is too much. And they said that there was a golden coat of armor. And there was a beautiful horse. and the, So you can imagine if he's, a, he's clearly not just a soldier, he's clearly somebody high up. Whatever would have been there, which would have been very valuable and very whatnot. So Khalid says, this is too much for one soldier. You must give some to the treasury. You must give some to the general fund to distribute to everybody. So the man says, but this is the sunnah of the Prophet. And this is what he told us to do. That the qatil... The, the, the soldier who kills gets everything from the soldier that he killed. And this is the general rule. Right now, again, I said this applies to an army that is not paid. As for an army that is paid by the government, remember in those days, uh, the armies were voluntary. And each person has been told that whatever you get is going to be yours. And then on top of that, the general treasury, you will get a share. And what is the percentage of shares between the one who has a horse versus the one who doesn't? The one with the horse gets three. One for him and two for his horse. Right? Why? Because taking a horse into battle, that horse or that camel is worth a lot of money and you're risking it. And also, when you take your own horse, you are responsible for maintaining, feeding, whatnot. So it's a big responsibility. It's also the big risk of loss. So all of these battles, this, this, this is the chapter of the fiqh of the war booty. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have... Yani we're not going to talk about this too much now, but uh, it it does it is true that the one who kills gets the the armor and all of that. Now Khalid was new. Remember, he's a new Muslim. Khalid says, "No, you're not going to get all of this." So he takes a percentage and he gives it to the general fund. You know, that's going to give to the whole army, and he just gives him something that is you know whatever trinkets or whatever. You get this, and the man says, "I'm going to complain to the processor." So Khalid doesn't say anything. Khalas, they go back to Medina. The man goes to the Prophet after everything has settled down and he complains that Ya Rasulullah, I killed the Roman general, I got this and Khalid took it from me. So uh, he called Khalid and Walid to confirm. Khalid said, yes, Ya Rasulullah, I took this percentage. So the Prophet said, here, give it all back to him. So Khalid gave him all that he had earned and at this, the man scoffed and mocked at Khalid and said, ha, didn't I tell you? Now you got what you deserved. So he mocked Khalid. So the Prophet said, what is this? Why did you just say this? So the man explained that uh, I had told him that I'll take him you know, to you and 
I will, uh, you know, complain. And now this is, your, your verdict was in my favor. At this, the Prophet became angry at the arrogance and the insolence of this man. That the man was now like boasting. Didn't I tell you? Now I, you got what you deserved. You got your scolding. And he said, in that case, O Khalid, do not give it to him. In that case, Khalid, do not give it to him. Will you not leave my commanders for me? Take the good from them and leave their bad. And this hadith has generated a lot of discussion about what is this meaning and what's not, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. And that is that this man deserved his armor, his booty, but when his arrogance got the better of him, the Prophet needed to send a message to the rest of the army that you cannot treat your leaders in this manner. You deserved it, you could have gotten it if you were humble, okay. But when you were so arrogant, and arrogance is a worse sin, as for Khalid, he made a genuine mistake. Khalid did not know or he didn't believe this man. He didn't know that the one who kills gets the armor, and he felt this is a lot. He didn't take it himself. He just gave it to the general fund. So Khalid made a genuine mistake. And this man's arrogance trumped the right side that he was on. And this is a very important point here. Notice this, the man was right, but his arrogance was so wrong that favor was not given. The, the judgment was not in his favor. And this clearly shows us the dangers of arrogance, even for the one upon the truth. Even for the one upon the truth, your arrogance can make you upon the batil. And Khalid was wrong in this case, but he was right in the sense that he acted in his own ishtihad. And he wasn't chastised. And the man that was chastised was the one who showed the arrogance. Also, we learn over here that it is allowed for a judge, a qadi, to alter a verdict in light of new circumstance. It is allowed for a qadi to change his ruling. Because right then and there, the Prophet changed his ruling. And it is allowed in light of other circumstance. Also, a very interesting point, the Prophet said to, and this was the, 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 the point of it, Aren't you going to leave my leaders to me? Meaning, have you no respect for my leaders that you're going to mock them in this manner? This is the meaning of the hadith. Have you no respect for my leaders? Now, who appointed Khalid to be a leader? The Prophet Muhammad No, the people did. Yet what did he call Khalid? My leader. Umarai, my leader. And this shows us the Sunni doctrine. This is a Sunni doctrine. That the Khalifa... The Sultan, the Wali, whom the people choose, is the Wali or the Sultan of Allah on this earth. Even though the Prophet Muhammad did not choose Khalid because he was not of those three. But when the people chose Khalid, he becomes the one whom the Prophet chose. And this is Sunni doctrine, by the way, that the Khalifa, legitimate Khalifa, represents. Basically, there's a hadith, and there's so many hadith of this, of, of this matter. For example, perhaps one of the most deep ones, As-Sultanu Waliyullahi Fil-Ard. In another hadith, As-Sultanu Dhillullahi Fil-Ard. That the Sultan is the representative, or the Sultan is Khalifatullah in one version. As-Sultan Dhillullah is the shadow of Allah on this earth. Meaning, he is representing the Sharia. And he is the one who is ultimately responsible. And that is why when the Prophet passed away, Abu Bakr said, I am Khalifa to Rasulullah. And Umar said, I am Khalifa to Khalifa to Rasulullah. They feel as if they're standing in the maqam, the political maqam at least, of the Prophet ﷺ. You understand this point here? And this is Sunni doctrine, that the legitimate ruler does have a respect and an authority that must be given to him in matters of this dunya. And I have spoken about this uh, many times, especially after the Arab Spring, uh, that such a hadith they are applicable to legitimate Islamic rulers who were khulafa. As for modern day dictators and presidents and, and parliaments and whatnot, these you cannot apply Islamic injunctions when they themselves are not ruling by Islam and through Islam. When they are secular regimes or democracies, you cannot use the Sharia for or against them. They don't represent Allah Azza wa Jal Sharia. Now, whether they should be obeyed or not goes back to the scholars of those times, and they look at Maslaha and Mafsada. They look at pros and cons. It is not correct to use the ahadith about obeying the ruler 
with regards to rulers who do not obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and overall their implementation of the sharia uh, in the land. And we're not talking about uh, their personal sins, we're talking about overall their sharia. And in any case, uh, again the point is, the sultan or the khalifa represents uh, the judgment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as much as is possible by a non-prophet on this earth. Now one interesting point, uh, before we conclude, one interesting point here is that this battle of Mu'ta is actually mentioned, one of the very few things that is mentioned by the Byzantine or the Byzantine chroniclers, the non-Muslim chroniclers. And it is extremely interesting that the earliest historian of the uh, Byzantine Empire that writes about Muslims, and his name is uh, Saint Theophanes, Saint Theophanes, and he's an aristocratic monk, and he wrote a very large book in ancient uh, Latin called uh, the Chronicles, or not even in Latin, it's ancient. Um, it's been translated, excuse me, into uh, modern Latin, and then from there it's been translated into English and other languages. And this work is the earliest work of the Byzantine Empire that mentions the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, And it mentions even the Battle of Mu'ta. And Theophanes died around 820 uh, CE. So 820 CE is very early on. That's one of the earliest books written. And he uses sources that we no longer possess. And one of the sources that he uses is that of a, uh, an Arab source that is a non-Muslim source. That he's using an Arab source to talk about the Islamic side of things. So he becomes one of the very few Roman authors with access to material and names and stuff that is not found in most of the other Byzantine sources. No other Byzantine chronicler was so well equipped uh, with the material that Theophanes was. And uh, he wrote, as I said, his book, The Chronicles, which has been translated. And uh, very interestingly, he mentions the Battle of Mu'ta in that uh, chronicle and I downloaded the book and I actually printed out the page from the uh, uh, the chronicle uh, from his chronicles and he mentions in the year 630 now he doesn't mention 630 he actually says in the year 623 but that's because their calendar when you convert it to our calendar is a little bit different uh, and then he always has the dates according to the Roman emperor and according to the emperors of the civilizations of that year so he says Heraclius 22nd year the same Heraclius Abu Bakaris, because they're adding OS, they add OS, Abu Bakr's first year. Now, this is a mistake from his side. He puts the battle of Mu'ta in the first year of Abu Bakr's Khilafah. And obviously, he's not 100% accurate. And by the way, his description of the Prophet is full of stereotypes and, and antiquated and whatnot. But clearly, by 700 CE, the Romans have heard of the new religion and the new prophet and the new Sahaba and their theology. And it's interesting to look at it from their perspective. It's full of incorrect inconsistencies and stereotypes, but he's mentioning a new religion, a new prophet, the children of Ishmael, descendants to Abraham, calling to monotheism. So he's mentioning certain truths and then he mentions, you know, vulgar facts as well that are the typical, you know, stereotypical things of multiple wives and this and that. The standard, you know, motif, the caricature that was painted by the Romans, is being passed down. So Theophanes says in the first year of Abu Bakr, in the 22nd year of Heraclius, he says that uh, Muhammad, uh, he doesn't call him Muhammad, he mentions Muhammad, but uh, he had appointed four emirs. This is another mistake, he had appointed three. But again, this is their side. Four emirs to fight the members of an Arab nation that were Christian. And this we, we already mentioned this, right? And they came in front of a village called Mukhiya. So he says the village was called Mukhiya. And they, uh, in that village was stationed Vicarius Theodore. Now Vicarius Theodore, uh, they say he was the brother of Heraclius. So it is mentioned in our books that the brother of Heraclius participated in the battle of Mu'ta. So he also is mentioning that Theodore was there. And they intended to fall upon the Arabs on the day when they sacrificed to their idols. Now this is an interesting tidbit that I did not find in any of the books of the Arab side of things, or the Muslim side of things. Excuse me. He is saying they intentionally chose a day that was a festival for them. And if this is the case, then that makes a lot of sense. You choose a day when they will be distracted. Our source books don't mention this. His book mentions that they chose that day. The Vicarius, meaning Theodore, on learning, now this is very interesting, 
and Allah knows how true this is, on learning this from a certain Qurashi, Qurayshite, called Qutaybas, who was in his pay, meaning there was a spy. There was a spy that had informed on them. Now this spy could not have been from the Sahaba because they're not going to get a spy. This would have been from the Arab Christian community. That there's somebody there who is in the pay of the, uh, the, the vicarious. He gathered all of this information and ascertained the day and the, and the time when they were about to attack. And therefore he himself attacked them at a village called Mutas. Now again, in our books, Mutas is not mentioned, but perhaps that was their name for a village. Now listen to this. And he killed three emirs and the bulk of their army. This is not true. The bulk of their army is not true. He killed 1%. One emir, listen to this now, called Khalid, whom they call God's sword, escaped. Theophanes is mentioning Khalid as Saifullah. And this is amazing that they already know Khalid is the one who caused them to escape. And why? Because they call him the sword of God. So the title that the Prophet Muhammad gave to Khalid ibn al-Walid had reached the Roman Empire. And Theophanes, when he's recording history, he is writing, they call this man the sword of God. And he's the one who managed them to escape. And to me, I was really... I mean, when I read this in tertiary, so I said, that can't, this is too good to be true. So I actually downloaded the entire book and tried to find where this is. And here, I actually downloaded it today. And I said, khalas, I'm going to read it myself. And alhamdulillah, it's right here, directly. That one whom they call the sword of God. And it's something, wallahi, Allah Azza wa said, this is the, the Prophet gave him the sword of God, the sword of Allah. And that is why his shuhra spread even to the uh, Romans. And of course, I mean, before we go on, of course, uh, this is why Khalid ibn al-Walid had to die in his bed. It is mentioned that when he was dying, he began crying. And there was a visitor there. And he said, turn me around and look at me from the front and back. You will not find two fingers on my body, except that there's a scar and a mark and a bruise and this and that. And yet here I am dying on my bed. You see, Khalid has warrior blood. And when you have warrior blood, you don't want to die on your bed. He's crying. Like I spend my life battling. I have a whole stellar record. Here I am dying on my bed. He doesn't understand the wisdom. But Ibn Kathir and other, all of the later scholars, they say, Khalid was safe Allah. And it is not allowed for anybody to break Saifullah in the battle. Only the one who unsheathed the Saifullah can put it back where it belongs. And that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Khalid and Walid is too holy to die on the battlefield. It's too much. Because if you were to break Saifullah, then what does that show? So the one man who did so much that he's actually called the sword of Allah, is not allowed to die on the battlefield. And he did not understand this. But inshallah, he got the ajr of the shaheed. But he has too holy to die as a uh, shaheed. Now, final point here. So the primary benefit of the battle of Mu'ta, what exactly does this do? It opened up the northern lands because uh, I would say 95% of the battles of the Sirah are southern. Medina downwards, right? The battle of Mu'ta is the largest battle up north. And there were small skirmishes, but Mu'ta was the mother of all northern battles. You understand this point? All of the other battles are going down south. Mu'ta, what it did was, okay, I agree, we all agree, the Romans were not defeated. And the Christian Arabs were not defeated way up north in Tabuk and whatnot. But what happened was the reach of the ummah has spread at least to the peripheries now. And the strength of the Muslims is established and fear is put in the hearts of those Arab Christian tribes. Fear is put in their hearts. And we will come back to this in Tabuk. That when the Prophet himself marched north, they couldn't even fight him. 
And there's no denying that Mu'ta had an impact. If only 3,000 of them could do so much damage to, however, 10,000, 15, we don't know the numbers, but suppose there were 15,000, 10,000. If only 3,000 could do so much damage and still escape, what are we going to do when the Prophet Muhammad himself comes? So when Tabuk takes place, they don't even show up. I'm, I'm telling you this beforehand, but we'll come to Tabuk later on. They can't even fight the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. So it's the first and only major battle that takes place up north. It's also the first and only battle in the lifetime of the Prophet with the Romans. It's the only battle with the Romans. And obviously this opens up the door of fighting the Romans after the death of the Prophet Khalid ibn Walid in particular gets that experience. And he knows the tactics of the Romans. He faces them in battle. And of course Allah will use him later on to fight the Romans. All of this is intended. After this, now remember, when does Mu'tah take place? What year does it take place? Beginning of the 8th year of the Hijrah. The beginning of the 8th year. When is the conquest of Mecca? Ramadan of the 8th year. Ramadan of the 8th year. Hajjatul Wada' is the 10th year. Right? Ramadan of the 8th year. So we're about to now, very soon inshaAllah ta'ala, finish off the conquests. Because the very next incident is going to be the conquest of Mecca. During the two years after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, basically Hudaybiyah is sixth year, and then Mu'ta is the beginning of the eighth year. During this year and a half to two years, every single serious threat to the Muslim community has been eliminated. By going up north, the message has been given to them, you cannot attack us. That's the least thing. And remember the Ghassanid chieftain, what was he saying? I'm going to show you who's the boss. I'm going to come down. I'm going to do this. Now it's all threat. You're not going to do anything once you've seen what they can do to you in your own territory. So it is true to say Mu'ta was not a victory, but the message was given. And that message was, don't mess with us. You can't mess with us. And therefore, at the end of this incident, a battle of Mu'ta, every single serious opposition to the Muslim community has been eliminated. The only threat, even that in quotation marks that is left, is a weak Debilitated, declothed, detoothed, neutered Quraysh. Nothing left. It's just an old dog without any teeth. Nothing left. Lots of empty air. But they're all now defecting over. And that's what Amr ibn al-As himself, that's why he left. Like, what's left now? It's only a matter of time. We will be conquered. Even Amr, and he's the statesman. He's the politician. He sees this. That's why he is the very last to go. And therefore, inshallah ta'ala, we will pause our seerah for a few weeks for the, the break. And then we will resume inshallah uh, next Gregorian year 2014. And inshallah ta'ala, we should be finishing the entire seerah within the Gregorian calendar 2014. Inshallah ta'ala. And with that, if there are any questions or... Yes. Why do you think the battle of Mu'ta is not as famous as the other battles? Number one, because the Prophet Muhammad did not participate. So it is a, what is that? It is the, the survey? Okay, um, yeah, okay. Uh, so, number one, because the Prophet Muhammad himself did not participate. Number two, because the details of the battle are very sketchy. And they haven't been mentioned in a lot of details. And there, there are a number of reasons for this. Of them is that, once again, the process did not participate. And of them is that, by and large, the battle is not a positive memory. And when it's not a positive memory, you don't tell it in gory detail. It's a loss. And losses are just covered up. And you don't go into a lot of detail. So these are the two reasons that come to mind. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Yes? No, they didn't because they thought reinforcements were coming. So the pause was too late. And by the time they figured out it was a ruse, so then they're not going to go after them. Yes? We mentioned this last week. Were you here last week? No, no, the Roman, no, no, Theophanes did not say that, no. Theophanes did not say that, no. But he just mentions that Theodorus sent a battalion and there were the Arab Christians as well. Both were there. Is there any reason why the Prophet 
we do not know why uh, the Prophet himself did not participate in this. Allah knows best. Um, we can only assume things. Why did the Prophet not go to Mu'tah? Uh, but he did go to Tabuk, which actually would have been more dangerous. And it was more difficult. And it was in the summer months. So Allah knows there must have been something else going on. Allah knows best. Yes. So he said it's a victory. The Sahaba or these Sahaba were accused of running away from the battle. Two separate things. They were accused of running away, turning their backs on the Romans and fleeing. And in, in, you can say that that did occur, that they turned their backs and they saved themselves. So the fact that they fled does not necessarily disqualify it as being a victory. And that's what I am also saying. That when the Prophet calls it a fatah, it is a fatah in its own way. And that is that the Muslims are saved. But the Muslims were not fleeing out of cowardice. The Muslims were fleeing because it's no point, just, just it's, it's useless. It's a tactical retreat for a later fight. That's what the Prophet himself is saying. They are not running away out of cowardice, they are tactically retreating. And Allah himself allows a tactical retreat in the Qur'an. Allah does not allow fleeing from the battlefield. In the Qur'an, Allah says, do not flee unless it is a tactical retreat. And this is what our Prophet himself said, that this is a tactical retreat. Yes? As we said last week, the reasons for this battle are a little bit vague, but no doubt the consequences I just mentioned are very real. And that is the Islamic Republic is now established all the way, almost up until the periphery of the Roman Empire. And even the Arab Christians are now threatened to attack Medina. So the sign has been given that we are too powerful for you. And perhaps that was the main wisdom. That the only threat possible would have been from up north, and that threat has been eliminated. And Allah knows best.